understand we've all felt stuck at one point or another, even the most successful people among us, because it's a rite of passage, a trial, to see if you have what it takes to be independent. The test is to prove that you deserve your destiny. Each week our goal is to bring you an inspiring story of someone who moved beyond their stranded face and found greatness on the other side. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast, and this is your host, Jessica Hurley. Welcome back to another episode of The Stranded Podcast. This is your host, Jessica Hurley. We are jumping into part two of our series that I've never done anything like this before with Ishmael Brown about his book, My Own Worst Enemy, The Black American's Story, because it was too darn good to cover in one interview. Um, This 200 plus page book is something I would recommend to any and everyone. And it just blew me away getting in depth about the mistakes he's made in relationships and in life with his career um, and just the realest version of himself and dealing with um, his father in in so many instances. And so we had to do a part two to talk about the other half of this book. So I'm welcoming back my guest, Ishmael Brown. Hey, everybody, what's going on? I'm back for part two. I'm excited to go even deeper. Um, like Jessica said, this is something that I've never even done in all of the interviews that I've conducted since the release of My Own Worst Enemy, A Black Man's American Story. So to be back for part two, I'm humbled, I'm thankful, and I'm just excited to be able to push forward a message of positivity and to speak more in depth about you know mental health issues as that's something that is so prevalent in today's time. So I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah, that's so true right now with these crazy situations right now with, you know, in celebrity news with Kate Spade and our awesome travel guide, you know, through our whole lives as you, Anthony, I was just like, what is going on? Like, what are we not talking about? What's not Mm -hmm. being told true? And in this book, I read the first half for our first interview, and then I go into the second half, and in both instances, you talk about suicide, and I was just like, oh my God, this is so real for men. Mm-hmm. It's so real. It's so crazy. But let's jump right in because I have to talk about the second half. And one of the things that I read that just blew me away was you have like a, it's so long. It's like a 20 page letter inside your book that you wrote directly addressed to your father, who in the mm-hmm. book you state very clearly was nearby, but was not present in your life and abandoned your family very quickly Um, and in it, you are very thorough about what he didn't do, what you're upset with him about only in the end to apologize to him. And Mm -hmm. I've heard, I've heard countless podcasts and situations where people have written books about their parents and they say it's one of the hardest things you will ever do because you have to do it knowing, having the guilt that your parents will read it. You know, whether you're talking about your mother, your father, or both, how, did you feel afterwards? Were you empowered or do you carry guilt with you knowing that your father may or may not have read this? I was completely empowered. It was a way for me to communicate with him uninterrupted as our communication styles are so different. He's, uh, he's loud. He yells, he curses, he screams. 
I'm very even killed. I'm not one to even raise my voice, to be completely honest with you. So to be able to speak to him uninterrupted just meant the world to me. And I knew this was the only way I could reach him and explain everything that I needed from him what I didn't receive from him and also for me to assume the ownership in our relationship because in any relationship regardless of the dynamic it takes two for a demise to occur you can't just sit here and point the finger at the other individual and say well you know what it's all on you you can't grow when you're constantly pointing the finger outward and never looking inward so this was my opportunity to say you know what dad I failed you that blows me away. And you, when you talk about finger pointing, I just think about all the relationships that have died, you know, where, whether it be your family, um, significant others, where people have countlessly pointed the finger and both people feel like they have to wit's end on everything they could do. And even after that, because I'm, I'm sure you look back and know there were times where you did call on your dad and maybe he wasn't there and it's like, how do you apologize knowing that you just, you know, knowing that you did every, you feel like you did a lot to ask for that type of love and not receive it? So at the time, I really didn't. As a child, I didn't know how to communicate what I needed. So it wasn't until I got older that I realized these were the lessons that I felt as if I was missing in my life. These were the situations and the teachings that I felt as if could have guided me or giving me perspective on the experiences that I was currently enduring. So it wasn't until I reached this place of being alone that I was able to fully analyze my childhood, deal with it head on instead of suppressing it and running from it. So I blamed him for things as a child that I didn't even understand. When I was born, he was 20. Again, I know where I was in my 20s. I wasn't ready to have a child by any means. So having the mindset of looking at it from a different angle and also understanding where I was in my growth cycle as a young man, I owed him a great deal of apologies. Because, again, I was inadequate in my communication. So how could he know what I needed, where I was, if I never took the time to communicate it to him. So I'm blaming him for different things that he has no idea about. That's not fair. That's not, not how a healthy, thriving relationship works. That's so crazy because it almost sounds like a, a significant relationship was ruined over pride. Yeah, I was very prideful. I was very spiteful and just, you know, I had a heart full of disdain towards him. And, you know, like I said, it wasn't all his fault. I had to assume that ownership. And thankfully, Dear Dad, I Failed You, the chapter was effective because he read it. I was just about to ask you that. Did he read it? (laughs) Yeah, he, he read it. And you know what? We now have a sustained relationship. Was he upset with you? No, not at all. And he told me, like, and I quote, he said, this is one of the most difficult things I ever had to read, but I hear you and I understand. That meant the world to me. Because with this book, I was like, you know what? If I change one life, that's more than enough. But if I reach my father, that's, just, that's what I need. 
because the older I get, there are more lessons that I'm going to go through that I don't have any guidance in. I don't have any experience there, but he does. And this is how I unlock the other half of who I am. Wow. That's like, how old were you when you wrote this book? I was between the ages of 21 and 25. It's like 25 years of like a calling for your father to finally get to this point. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And, and he told me, he was like, I was giving you lessons that you weren't ready to receive as a child. I was giving you the principles and the foundations of a man. And we had a sit-down discussion this past April when I went home for a month to just really recalibrate and figure out my next step in life. And, you know, I really got to know him on a deeper level as well as my mother, learning the adult that they were and not necessarily looking at them through the frame of, you know, parents. And you really have to take the time to learn who they are as adults because you're going to understand their mistakes, their thought processes, and why they attack situations the way they do. So that was a very interesting conversation, a very freeing conversation, because it's like, you know what? I blamed you for teaching me how to be a man at the end of the day. And he told me, it was like, your brain just wasn't ready to receive those. There's so many times in our life the lessons occur and we're not ready for them. It's like, mm-hmm. a, I, I feel like I was listening to something the other day and they said opportunities like a bus and it keeps coming by and eventually you just decide to get on or not, not or let it pass you by. Oh, wow. And I, I agree though. I was like, that's our entire lives. <laughs> <laughs> but in your, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> in your letter to your dad, you said, I needed my dad to teach me that perfection was unattainable, but cons- or but consistently self-approving was the goal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, isn't that life? Yes. But how did you learn? Like, at what point in your life did you learn that, like, you were obsessed with perfection? And why did you feel like your dad was the person that needed to share that with you? Because I felt as if that was a lesson of being a man that you're going to fail and you have to accept that there is no perfection that idea is false and without his guidance they're saying hey it's okay to fail hey it's okay not to reach that mark but really value the lesson that you learned really value the strides that you took to get there that's the self-improvement that's the evolution of who you are so the reality is is that you were running from the fear of failure that was the obsession with perfection. Yeah, yeah. Failure and just wanting to be accepted and, you know, wanting to receive validation, not in the sense of, you know, awards and, you know, attention from people, but just to recognize that, hey, I am here. I am, you know, taking strides to be the best that I can be and to be unforgettable. And like I said in my first interviews more so for me I felt invisible and I just wanted people to see me. Wow. You said um, all throughout this book uh, the entire book you talk about several instances in your life where you basically became a recluse where -hmm. you shut everyone out and it was what you were used to doing and it was basically what you were good at from experiences in childhood where 
you felt like you saw your family portray one another and you a lot. And that was basically your defense mechanism was, I'll just be alone. I can be alone. And at the end of the book, you explain that you realized at a point you were ultimately conspiring against yourself by shutting everyone out because you realized you did need people and you needed community. Mm-hmm. How did you realize this and what did you do to change it? Because um, what I realized every, in all of those moments when I would hide from the world and you know get in my ways of being a recluse, I was also self-medicating. And that only was to my detriment. And when I would go and shut in moments, I would only be hurting myself. You know, whether I had individuals I was mad and not speaking to, or I just felt as if they couldn't understand what I was going through, I never gave them the opportunity to understand what I was going through. So again, I'm blaming them for something they're unaware of. That's not fair, and that's not how adults carry themselves. That just showed my inability to communicate and to recognize where I was in life and my emotional um, intelligence. It was just zero. So through that self-medication, I'm dying on the inside. I'm, I'm too embarrassed to have the conversation. Uh, I don't even know how you go about explaining, hey, you know, I'm drinking this cough syrup in unhealthy dosages. I'm popping these pills that you don't know about. Like, I, was, I was ashamed of myself. How did you... Well, you, you talk about it twice in the book, and I have to commend you for this. You talk about twice in the book having a serious addiction. Like you just said, mm-hmm. when you were a recluse, like you went straight to cough syrup and, and medic, medic, self-medicating. But to go through that in this book and then be in the place you're in now where you've completely overcome this, how did you change it? I just wanted it better for myself. And, you know, you go through something once, I, I would like to deem it as an experimentation phase. But to do it again, it's like, no, you really have a problem. And you really need to sit and think about what are the effects of this problem, the long-term effects, short-term effects, and, you know, where does this lead to? Because everything is a gateway to the next high, to something that's even, you know, more detrimental to your health. And I just value myself more than dying. And I thought about the impact that I would have on my mother because I, me, disappointing my mother is the greatest fear that I have now. Yeah, you, you mentioned that several times in the book where it's so funny. You like, you're doing something wrong and your mother catches you, like your mother catches you with a gun. Um, it's not licensed or, you know, your mother finds you in jail. Like, and I can feel the fear every time she catches you. Like, that's the number one person that, you kind of just, you go right back to your normal, like, Ishmael when your mother mm-hmm. questioned you. Like, you are so scared of disappointing her. And it's almost Be- like throughout the entire book, she's your saving grace. Because she really sacrificed so much for me to have the best possible life. She didn't know all the ins and outs of being a parent, but she learned right along with raising me. And who am I to spite her of that? She gave me too much from lessons to um, put clothes on my back with food on the table. She really sacrificed too much for me to be doing the wild things that I did growing up. I want to backtrack to something you said about suicide just because it's such a prevalent topic right now. 
I was in the office yesterday, and of course, everyone's talking about these celebrity suicides, and everyone has very different views on suicide. Like, it almost could be a political conversation, because, like, no one person thinks the same about it. And I overheard somebody saying, I just don't get it. Like, this is ridiculous. It's the most selfish thing you could ever do. And in that moment, I was just like, I hurt so bad for those people because I was like, you don't understand how those people felt in that moment. They may have felt like they could not relieve themselves of the box they were stuck in in their mind. Mm -hmm. And there was only one way out. Like, they really get stuck in a place where they only think there's one way out. But you keep saying it, too. You keep saying that in those moments, even in the book, you talk about putting a, a rifle to your chin mm-hmm. and then weeping on the floor because of the thought of how selfish this would be to your mother and your sister. Mm-hmm. What would your, if there's anyone out there contemplating this, what would your advice be? Talk to anyone, not just somebody, but anyone, because when you're just holding that type of pain, and those microaggressions is going to destroy your mental. And once you lose your mind and that place of peace that you have, that one small smidgen of peace that you're holding on to, it's over. Those dark voices get louder and you can't contain them. You can't control them. Because I remember the last time that I considered suicide, when I even attempted it, when I put that rifle to my chin. And the tears just flow. And I was like, you know what? Don't nobody care about me. Nobody hears me. Nobody sees me. I'm invisible. I keep getting passed on. And it was just unbearable. I really was ready to leave this earth. And then you thought about your mom and your sister. Yeah, they gave me hope. Well, and everything that I learn about, like I've been on this entrepreneurship journey and everything that I learn is like, to be as powerful as you expect to be, you have to have a why. And every mm. every person in those suicidal moments, they get to that point because they no longer have a why. Yeah. And that's why it's considered so selfish. But even if in that moment, it had to be family. It had to be family. That's what kept you from making that type of mistake. Right. Because there's no coming back from that. And I read a tweet the other day where it says suicide is in pain and just transfer it to the living. Ooh. That's so true. Because I was, I was reading about that Kate Spade situation and she left her daughter and her husband behind, which they were separated. But mm-hmm. she left her daughter behind, which I heard in earlier years, she sold her company just to be a mother. See? So I'm like, well, what was the point of that? Mm-hmm. You just transferred all that pain over to your 13-year-old daughter. And she has to grow up with that. Yeah. And I'm like, and someone said that, like, they felt like she may have done it to make her husband feel the pain that she felt. I'm like, but you never win. You would never win from a situation like that. Just transfer the pain, like you said. You said a quote in the the book that was, to me, just, uh, it was so simple. But I was like, oh, my God, this is the premise of my podcast. You said, pain has the power to mold your outlook on life. And and we're talking about right now that pain has the power to take over your life. But in your scenario and a lot of others, and the reason why I did this podcast is because on the other side of pain, when you embrace the purpose it has, it can change the way you perceive everything for the better. 
Glory is on the other side of that pain. Say it again. (laughs) (laughs) Glory is on the other side of that pain. It's a temporary thunderstorm that you just have to weather in order to come out on the other side to complete sunshine. I heard something. Well, it's in my intro on my podcast. And that's what stuck with me when I heard (laughs) it. But it's, it basically explained that um, it's a rite of passage. It's almost like not direct pain, but pain and getting through that thunderstorm is a rite of passage. It's God's way of telling you that you are meant to be so much more than average. And if you could just prove to me that you can get through this, I'll give you the best version of yourself on the other side. Yeah, I agree. It is a rite of passage. And I like to minimize pain to experience. Because that's really what it is. It's just more stripes within life. Because life is a marathon. It's, you know, ongoing. The pain never stops. It just shifts. And the desires that we have in life, they don't go anywhere. You know, once we reach a goal, we're looking towards the next goal. We're trying to figure out where's our happiness lie. And we're searching and we're searching and we're searching. Um, I remember from my personal experience when I was unemployed, my happiness relied solely in getting employment. And I was in a relationship and I really didn't truly see the value in the relationship. And once I got employed, she left me. Now I'm unhappy all over again. So it's like there's no true happiness there because you're constantly looking elsewhere when you receive these blessings. And that's pain and that's experience. So you have to really learn to look inward for that happiness. Uh, that's exactly what I was going to ask you next is where you think happiness is because the fact that you just said that pain is forever it just shifts I was like whoa that's true <laughs> that's very true <laughs> where where do you think you find happiness it's on the inside it's coming it's taking those situations that you've been through throughout your life and looking at them from face value and taking the lessons from them it's life is about wins and lessons, not wins and losses. It's truly your perspective. When you're looking at it through a half empty glass, you're always going to be negative and you're going to be manifesting more negativity into your future. So you really have to look at it through a positive lens and think about, okay, great. What did I take from the situation where you were, prior to the situation, where you were during the situation, and where you currently are. You're in three different spaces within your life. And no one, it's just, it's really just the turbulence. Mm-hmm. On the other you side just, is... You just weather and so Yeah. That's life, in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so on the other side of this letter to your father, which was my favorite part of the book, is my other favorite part of the book. (laughs) You have an entire chapter about being a womanizer. Yes. And I was like, oh, vulnerability number two. Like, you you tell on all men. Like, (laughs) 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 and you are so honest about it. But to me, it was so, it wasn't relieving because we haven't solved the issue clearly. But it was relieving because a lot of women, we fight for years and years and years having men tell us that we're wrong for chastising this, that this is just normal. 
this is how men are and you either accept it or you don't. Mm -hmm. And you're saying, I'm dead wrong. Here's all the things I did. And you go as deep as into like how our culture, like you were surrounded by nothing but men that had a list of women, how we live in a culture of music that even music that you love, that glorified shaming and dismantling like the greatness of women and what men should do with women. And then you even talk about sitting around in a room with men, you know, laughing about the fact that none of you will indulge in love with the women that you date. Mm-hmm. What? I was like so sad because I know how true this is. That's the culture we live in. And it's almost like that's 90% of it. So how, what, what are we Oh my God, what do we do? <laughs> what What are women supposed to do in a culture like this to even have the audacity to expect love? Women should continue to be the best and greatest forms of themselves. It's a situation where for men, if it's something we want, and I mean, if there's a woman that we want, she's going to motivate the change that's required from within. She, like, I'm fully a proponent of when it comes to growing, maturing, and, you know, dealing with the demons of your past, you have to want that for yourself, first and foremost, not for anyone else. You have to do it for the person that you see in the mirror every day, right? Mm-hmm. But when there's a woman you meet in your life and you realize you cannot live without, she's going to motivate that change. And I wholeheartedly stand by that because many women, we need each other. Today's society, we're so busy uh, combating one another. You have women who, I don't need a man, I'm independent. And you have men who are, man, I get another one, ain't no thing. And that's really breaking apart the essence of family. Like, we can't create family if we're at odds with each other. So I just realized the importance of the foundation of family is it shapes your entire upbringing and your outlook on life and how you deal with relationships of your future. When you think about when you're dating or any relationship that you're in, I'm a firm believer that you have to have a discussion on definitions. For example, when it comes to love, the definition that a woman may have on love it's based on her experiences with her father, with men she either looked up to or had a strong influence on her life, and the relationships that she's been in in a romantic sense. Her definition of love is completely different than my definition of love. So you have to understand how to come to a common ground in that definition. And if you don't, it's going to be constant conflict. The same thing with providing. Her definition of providing may not be from a financial standpoint. She may be great financially. She may even make more money than you, and that's completely okay. She may need you to provide security, to provide emotional support, to provide guidance, to provide leadership. But again, if you don't have that discussion about that definition, the two of you will never be on the same page. And I could even attest that it would take a very mature woman to be able to define that in the way of her needs. Because mm-hmm. I know a lot of women that would define love in a way in which we give it. See? And a man may define it in a way of what he receives it. Right. 
That's like, this is all like the five love languages book. You talk about it. I've talked about it in several podcasts and it's so appropriate, but it's so hard sometimes for people to give love in any other way than the way in which they understand how to receive it. Mm-hmm. But, we all, but we also have to understand each other's experiences because you have some excuse me, you have some people that are very adamant about PDA, you have some people that are not. But you have to ask the question as to, okay, why are you uncomfortable here? What is it that of your past that you saw or that rubbed you the wrong way that made you so against this? It can be something as simple as posting your girlfriend on you know, social media, holding her hand out in public, whatever the case may be. You have to really understand what they went through. Yeah, you you said security, and I have been to several women's conferences, and we talk about this all the time, that women don't consider, well, most, I'm speaking for most, but a lot of women don't want to consider financial support a provider anymore. They mm-hmm. consider the best form of love as security because mm-hmm. that's harder to find. You can find a man to financially support you these days, just about mm-hmm. anyone. And he can financially support you and still not give a shit about you. Exactly. But if he can give you that emotional security, I'm not talking about physical security, that emotional security, a woman wants, most women want so badly to look at their man and be like, no matter what he does, he would never cross me. He would never let another woman think she could take my place. Right. Because like you said, money doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't. Right. Yeah, we all need it, you know, to pay our bills, you know, to raise children. Yes. But again, if someone's giving you money, but they're not giving you anything else, why are you still in that relationship? Because you're you're more fixated on the experiences of reaping the benefits of that money, but there's a hole and there's a void in your heart where you can't have a conversation with that individual about some things that you're currently going through. Because there's nothing there. Right. And I but you got but you got a new person. (laughs) That you're walking around sad as I don't know what. Right. I'm laughing, but I've, I know, myself included, so many women that have experienced this where we think that that's the lifestyle. And that's what has created so many, like, women that are like this now. Mm-hmm. That are like, it's a facade. Yeah, it's such a facade. This is such a defense mechanism. Like, I've heard, I, it's so funny. I've had men that have talked to me about, like, boss women. They're like, oh, yeah, she don't need no man. She got everything she need. Like, she helped me boss up. You know, just crazy stuff. And I'm like... No woman in real life doesn't want a man to hold her down. Mm-hmm. Like, she can play that role all she wants, but every woman needs that security. And that money, eventually, just like looks, will be fleeting. Right, right. You could, a man could lose his job and they say, then that money's gone, those gifts are gone, those shoes are no longer being purchased, those purchases, those purses are no longer being purchased. He's not flying you out anymore. Now what you going to do? Right. What's in between the two of you? Right. And I feel like so many women these days are like picking the best of the worst, mm-hmm. you know, like three or four relationships in and they're like, well, make, they're making relationships work because this is the best of the, the four worst they've had when all but reality works. That's, that's them settling in the long run. Yes. And I've been there too. I know how that is. And you, you even passed the womanizer discussion, which is so real. 
but you talk about, you identify two relationships of many that you say change you the most and you don't mm-hmm. identify their name, which is really unique. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, did he just name these women? But you explained to me that these are uh, women of hip hop that you named. R&B singers, my, two, two of my favorite R&B singers and the commonalities between those two women in real life are so strong to the, you know, the R&B singers, so. Yeah, and you named two amazing women, Aaliyah and Shadda, <laughs> like Absolutely. the two most amazing women out there. Um, Ever. You know, rest in peace to our beautiful, beautiful Aaliyah, but. Absolutely. Your two stories about these women. I was like, every woman needs to read this because every woman has been through this. And especially with, especially with Sade. And then you talk about in comparison, the story with your father and you, you're basically saying to your mother, she couldn't show you how to love a woman. Only a man could show you how to honor a queen. Mm-hmm. Do you think our, do you think our men that are growing out, growing up without fathers, are doomed in this situation? Yeah, they're in the same predicament I was, but I tax those men who don't have those positive role models in their life to go seek them out. You can't continuously go through life blaming your upbringing on your current situation, your current circumstances. you got to go seek out that wisdom because it's out there. And there are people who are willing to give you those lessons so that you don't make the mistakes that they made in their lifetime. And I did that. Um, it was through fraternity members. It was through older friends that I had. Like, hey, give me your wisdom. Give me your mistakes that you made. How do I come out better? And it's almost like older men start seeking that too little too late. After there's so much collateral damage from multiple relationships. hmm With Sade, you say... <laughs> You say she was a soldier for love. So it sounds like in the story, just on no countless end, she just was giving and giving and giving and wanted love to win in this situation. And she knew how to love everyone in the dearest, deepest way. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how she was older and she was more established and how beautiful she was. And you talk her up. And then you say, once she let her guard down, I made her pay with her vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Explain to me what you meant by that. Essentially, I was a narcotics dealer. <laughs> You're laughing, I'm serious. Cash handling I, expert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sold her hope. The, the, the narcotic of hope. And just like any other narcotic, there's this euphoric high but there's a deathly low. And in doing that, I robbed her of her peace. I gave her what she wanted to see, but it wasn't who I was at the time. And she paid for it in letting down her guard and letting down her wall. And I destroyed her peace, her peace of mind and, you know, the peace within her heart. I have to ask you this, and you're honest. So this makes me think of all the women that were manipulated. Mm-hmm. And you're very honest about me being manipulative with her about basically it was not like it, this was clear for everyone to see. 
you were very quiet in, manip in the ways that you manipulated her and it was not publicly clear for her for a very long time. You basically just gave her just enough to hope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, what is that with men? Like, what is that insecurity that I know this can't be serious, but I'm going to hold on to it as long as I can and give just enough until I have to figure out what I have to do. What, what is that about? It's selfishness, to be honest. Like, we'll see the value in who that woman is and what she can do for our lives and what she's already done in our lives. But we just know we're not ready to fully commit because we have some demons that are, you know, blaring its ugly face on a day-in and day-out basis. And I just really couldn't communicate that to her at that time because I just wasn't ready, to be honest with you. But again, I recognized her value and I saw the good that she meant because she, her heart was so pure. Did it take you walking away from that relationship until you realized how pure and good she was? It took me like three, maybe four years to really see that. Afterwards? <laughs> yeah, I'm so serious. Like, I, I knew within the relationship, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, she means me well. She helps me grow. She helps me develop. But, you know, I was young. I was in college. I was, you know, childish and extremely selfish that I was just like, yeah, whatever, cool. This is another one out there. But it wasn't until years later that I was like, you know what? One, I owe her an apology. Two, she really did mean me well, and she was good for me, but I just wasn't ready at that time. Ouch. Ouch. This is why I always hear they're not going to realize it until it's way too late. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm so sorry, ladies. <laughs> so <sorry. laughs> <Me too. laughs> oh ouch man but it's one of those things where I'm, I'm thankful for the experience and I'm thankful that I had the opportunity to apologize to her and her and I are good terms you know like she's someone that I could reach out to and just get you know some knowledge or bounce an idea off of her and there's no um there's no malice on either end. Like, it's just genuine appreciation for the friendship and the friendship that we have. And she didn't have, she didn't owe me that. She didn't owe me anything. I love that you take responsibility for everything now. It's like, that's the oh. place of your life that you're in. Oh, yes. Right. I have to. Backtracking, because you did just say something about college. You go through this whole phase where you meet a mentor and you're in college and you talk about how you know now that you masked all your insecurities by taking on as many leadership roles as possible. Mm -hmm. And this threw me so far because I was like, well, this is me for one. <laughs> and it brought on so many things because I was thinking about that quote where they always say like, check on your strong friend because you know, we try to be there for our friends that we think are needy or they're vulnerable or they need our help. But people in leadership roles, they don't, they're not weak. They're strong. They don't need help. They're fine. That's why they're doing all these things because they're, they're built stronger than a little bit stronger than all of us. And I just picture you in all these leadership roles and I'm thinking you probably needed help the most, Yeah. but it was your way of covering up your insecurities. What, what would your advice be to those people that know they have a strong friend? First off, check out all your friends. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like, 
I've been seeing the check on your strong friend. Excuse me, check on your strong friend tweet. I've been seeing the memes on Instagram, like the, the statuses on Facebook. But seriously, check on all of your friends. You know, everybody's going through something. Um, you have some people who are more willing to have the discussion, more open about it. But we all need to be checked on. I just want to make that clear. Uh, but for me, during those times, I was just running for myself. That's why I kept getting those leadership roles. I knew there was a positive in it from the standpoint of, you know, it builds my resume, it builds my experience. Um, it helps me uh, professionally from the standpoint of being out in front of people and that FaceTime and being able to have discussions with people in other leadership roles and meeting with business owners and uh, people within managerial roles at companies that I wanted to work at. So it all made sense until it came to thinking about where I was in life from, you know, my mental standpoint and uh, what I was dealing with and what I was, like I said, running from, it was me truly masking everything that I was going through. So I really didn't take that time. You know what else this really makes me think of is it's almost like you were dealing with insecurities and taking on all these leadership roles was like another form of suppression almost. It's just another way of suppressing dealing with your insecurities. It's just another way of not dealing with it, just in the lesser negative form. Mm-hmm. And it's not that leadership isn't a good choice, but it's like, it's just a, like, imagine the damage. It's, it's the same thing. It's this issue where men are not dealing with, and I, I keep saying it men and like I'm blaming it on men, but we're not, we're never dealing with it. I know so many women like this. Like I've had bosses like this that take, take leadership role after leader, leadership role when I know they're personally down in the dumps and they're just doing it so that they can get validation in one place when they're weaker in another. It's really a defense mechanism and it's running, it's running away from self. It's almost like being in a horror film where you're trying to kill yourself. Ooh. I had a boss like that before, man. She had so much going on and she would just fight to take everything on. I'm like, you got kids and you got this personal situation going on and you come to work crying every day. But as soon as somebody asks you to do something, you're like, I'll take it. I'm like, what is wrong with you? You're running away from it. And it's like no one ever shows you how to take on those demons head on. Because a lot of us are scared of what's in our closet. Mm. Because that's, that's why they're in the closet. Right. It's, it's, it's a way of out of sight, out of mind, but it's not true at all. You're doing is prolonging the healing process. And that's that obsession with perfection again. If yeah. I push my closet further back and I keep being validated with all these things I'm great at, well, I can just pretend like that doesn't exist. Yeah, because like, I, I have insecurities to this day. Like, Don't we all? Yeah, for sure. And it's, like, it's one of those things where people don't take the time to ask the question as to, you know, why do you have that insecurity? What is it rooted in? And, you know, or even offering, how can I help you there? One of the things I'm dealing with now is my weight. My Me too. Uh, like, figure it out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's wild to hear a man say that. And, and you know, in conversation with friends, with homies, man, you tripping, you know what I'm saying? They're going to textize you. Are you serious? You sound like a woman right now. But for me, I was fat for 
basically all my life. I didn't start losing weight until I moved to D.C. and went through that breakup. And ever since then, I struggled maintaining weight. Wow. So that's my insecurity with it. And then when I go through different spells of, you know, stress or, you know, I'm just lost inside of my head with these thoughts, I forget to eat. You know, my, my metabolism slows down. I'm not as hungry. I may eat once a day. And it's just like, yo, I can't fit my clothes. They're too big. And I just purchase these clothes. You mean to tell me a breakup will thin me out? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, in the worst way. <laughs> so, but to just, you know, have that struggle with the weight, um, that's not really a conversation. It's really welcome, you know, people, man, you're skinny, you know, what, what do you have to complain about? Nah, it's unhealthy, man, being this small. Like, I'm 27 years old and I'm underweight. You know what, though? It's, I love that you say this and that you, there's a lot of stuff that you own in the book that I'm like, people would never talk about, but I'm so tired of the insecurities conversation. Like, it's a disease. Like It's not. Oh, my God. People are like, oh, you know, either people are saying... I'm getting over my insecurities or they're saying like insecurities don't look good on you. You shouldn't let that stuff show. And it's like, if I hear one more person say that, I'm like, everybody has insecurities. That's why Issa Rae is the goat. The goat. Less praise her for herself insecure, but she's really forcing the conversation to happen about people having insecurities, especially as young professionals who have the appearance of, having it all together thanks to social media, but it's, that's not true at all. Like We really are going through stuff and we're really self-conscious about, you know, our bodies. We're self-conscious about, you know, the appearance. We're self-conscious about the way we speak, like our hair, especially our hair as an African-American. Like, there's a lot of things to be self-conscious about. Comparison is the thief of all joy. Listen, I, I just wish that we could get to a point where we could talk about insecurities and things that we deal with as normal, especially for men, this is but normal. That, but that's why I'm so adamant about doing so and being so transparent in every interview that I do or whenever I'm just having a conversation with someone like, hey, this is what I'm going through. I'm not hiding it anymore. Well, in, hopes, in hopes to break through to you know anyone who hears any of the interviews or anyone that I encounter in my daily life, to let them know, like, hey, you know, one, it's okay. And two, give me what you're going through. Ishmael, you're going to make me help you start a men's group. Uh, listen, <laughs> I'm all for it. I'm, I'm all for it. You know, and I, I just have to pray for my city. Like, every time, you know, I hear from my parents, they're always telling me about, you know, how some kids are dying. It's like, man, you know, enough is enough. Enough is enough. And I can't commend you enough for just taking this book. And being all types of honest. And it's almost like instead of, you said something about, oh, you said something in there about working with youth. And about how like middle school age boys were like, you thought it would be easy and it was the toughest thing ever. Because it was like, <laughs> they were in this phase where they felt like they had to prove that they were a man. But the only way they knew how to prove it was like through fighting and arguing and who was the loudest. Yeah. And I that was aggression. like, oh, that aggression. And I was like, you know, that's what this whole book is about almost though. It's. You, you basically took a book and said the way that we perceive manhood is all wrong. There's a whole mm-hmm. other way that we're supposed to do it. And it's not who's the, lo- who's the loudest and 
who's the toughest and who's the biggest and who can who will fight anybody. It looks completely different for us, and we need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I commend you for taking taking yourself and sharing your story and using your honesty to help other people because it's going to help a lot more than one. Thank you, thank you, and I, I'm appreciative. I'm just, and I also have to thank God for giving me these experiences and also giving me the courage to share them. I have to end our interview with a quote that you ended the book with, and it was perfect. And it wasn't from you; it was from someone else. Mm-hmm. And you says, uh, you say, and God said, "Love your enemy." So I obeyed him, and I loved myself. And to me, one of the issues for all of us is getting out of our own way. Mm-hmm. If we ever expect to level up, if we ever expect to evolve, we have to stop self-sabotaging, which is a lot of your book, and get out of our own way and stop being our own worst enemy. And I think in one sentence, you concluded that, and that starts with loving ourselves. Yeah. That's the whole premise of the book, just the self-evolution of self-love. You think you're there yet? Yeah, I love myself. I, I'm i at a place where I embrace all of the wrong that I've done. And like you said, I, I take ownership of it. Now, if I was still in denial about these things, then I wouldn't you know, equate that to loving myself. But you know, I'm, I'm happy for all of the decisions that I've made. Um, I'm at peace with them. No one can make me feel bad about anything I've done. And for those individuals that I've hurt, I've taken progressive steps to apologize and to make amends to those relationships because they didn't deserve it. It was more so about what I was going through and I was projecting that trauma and that pain onto their lives and robbing them of their peace. Because all of this is about having inner peace. Mm. And, and coming to that place of joy within self, that's the true essence of happiness, inner peace. So for those individuals that I, I robbed them of that opportunity, you know, I, my sincerest apologies and, you know, my heart goes out to them um, as that wasn't the best representation of self, but that's who I was. That was a part of my growing pains. And I pray that they don't hold me to, you know, the individual that they met then, but more so to who the man I am today. Before I ask you for your closing advice, I have to point out something you just said. And this is what I really enjoy and I want to point out to a lot of people. You just talked about that you love yourself. Mm -hmm. You can say that with contentment, right? Oh, absolutely. But we just talked about insecurities. We just Mm -hmm. talked about how you're struggling with your weight. Mm -hmm. And I want to point out that that is never ending. It's going to be your weight and then it's going to be your hair. And then it's going to be... (laughs) You know, and then it's going to be, you're not buff enough. And then it's going to be, you're you're too broke right now. Like, but those are insecurities. And that does not mean that that will ever stop when you start loving yourself. And and I think people feel as if, well, there's a common misconception that just because you have insecurities, you can't love yourself. That's not true. That's not true at all. And just like how you said, it's going to just shift to something else. And that's, that's what I like because you explain self-love as accepting all the things you've ever done and loving mm-hmm. yourself anyway and loving yourself about your future decisions. And it had nothing to do with these little itty-bitty insecurities that everyone's going to have forever. Mm-hmm. You just have to take responsibility. Yeah. 
That's it. That's the name of the game. Just ownership, getting out of your own way, finding inner peace, loving yourself, and embracing your past. Well, I was going to ask you what your advice would be to others to stop self-sabotaging, but that was it. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. But is it any different for men? You're asking, is it any different for men? Like, your advice to men to stop self-sabotaging, what would... What would your advice be? Break the idea of Titanism. Like, you don't always have to be tough all the time. You don't have to be the hardest in your corporate America job. Or, you know, you don't have to be insensitive all the time. Or rebuke your emotions. No. Welcome them. Enjoy them. Live in them. Learn them. uh, Cultivate them. Like, we really have to exhibit a high level of emotional intelligence. That's how we're able to grow as men, grow as a species, and also be there for the queens that we're going to have in our lives, you know, and be there for our children um, because they all need us to be emotionally intelligent, to be able to understand where they are on their path and where they are on their growth cycle. We have to be that. Embrace those emotions, guys. And you have to be that to break the chain. Yeah, break that generational curse, man. Because we're identifying the problem, and here's the solution. Break mm-hmm. the chain. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for part two of a two-part series about your amazing, <laughs> awesome book. Tell my people again where they can find your book and find you. You can find the book on Amazon.com. You can also find it at IshmaelBrown.com. That's I-S-M-A-E-L Brown. Dot com And also, you can find me on Instagram, Ishmael, I-S-M-A-E-L underscore Brown. Um, Twitter, Ishmael, I-S-M-A-E-L underscore Brown 3. Just find me. Let's have these conversations. Let's continue to forward it. Let's continue to uplift one another. Let's continue to embrace who we were and, you know, just strive to be better. I love it. Thank you so much for your time and your honesty and your realness and your obsession with using yourself to help others. I can't thank you enough. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of The Stranded Podcast. If you felt inspired or moved today, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. You can learn more about us and our guests at thestrandedphase.com. And don't forget that your stranded phase is a rite of passage on your journey to greatness.